This is Podco Media Networks. It's the Demystifying Data Podcast with Chris Clegg, where we deconstruct the tools and techniques marketers need to make data more actionable. Here's Chris. Hello, welcome. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Demystifying Data. I'm your host, Chris Clegg. And today we're going to take a step back. If you've been a regular listener of the podcast, you know that we've dove into concepts around data, data management, and the structure of a data practice. So we've talked a lot about having underlying methodologies, having strategy, and letting that business strategy drive the kind of metrics you're collecting and then what you're doing with from an analysis and reporting perspective with those metrics once you have data. But what we haven't done is talked about the logistics of data collection, because that in and of itself can oftentimes be half the challenge. So we're going to devote today's podcast to talking about the logistics of data collection. And it's first of all important to have a sense of what kind of data you want to collect, because there's a few options available to us. And, uh, and once you have a better understanding of the kind of data you want to collect, there's a few different mediums to get that data that all have different levels of convenience or cost or time, people, and money resource requirements. So let's talk a little bit about why we're getting data. And, and at the biggest picture in business, you are trying to get information to make better business decisions. And uh, the nature of that information is either going to be something that is a discovery process, so you're trying to better understand what you don't know, or the nature of the information is more a quantification process. You want to validate the degree to what you think is true is actually prevalent and relative. So we've got this discovery, discovering what we don't know, or we've got this validation challenge. And usually the nature of the questions we ask in business are going to fall into one of those two categories, or the information that's going to give us what we need to make better decisions is going to fall into one of those two categories. And in data sciences and the practice of market research, we think about data in that context in a very similar way. And specifically, we think about the discovery process as being qualitative information. And qualitative information, qualitative research, qualitative data is oftentimes misunderstood and misdefined because qualitative is always a discovery process. And it's always about using whatever tools and techniques are available to us to understand the words people use, the way things are thought about, the processes or the engagements that people go through that we have no theories about beforehand. So it could be a question of, you know, why is it that people don't think about the health of their brain and the food they eat? Or it could be a question around when a college student is uh, finishing and they graduate college and they move back home because they have nothing, no idea how to launch. What's at the heart of that failure to launch? What's the, what's the core problem there that they have that's keeping them from jumping out into the world and, and taking a crack at it all? And, and those kind of discovery questions, how do consumers think about recycling? Those kind of discovery questions are the questions that qualitative research methods and qualitative data will help us answer. And when it comes to qualitative data, there's a few different options. You know, we never want to dismiss the idea of secondary data. Secondary data is data that's been collected for some other purpose 
that we can get access to and repurpose for our own needs. And secondary data is going to exist in a lot of public sources that we could get for free. And so a, a common qualitative secondary data tool could be something like Twitter. It could be something like social media where you're looking at what's the gist of the conversation? What kind of things are people talking about? What kind of words are they using? What are the trends? Those are all qualitative questions that can have very applicable place in, in helping us make the right business decisions. But there's also sources such as the U.S. Census may help us understand some things. The U.S. Census is going to be more quantitative than qualitative for the most part. But either way, there's, there's going to be secondary sources that you can reach out to, message boards online, listening into conversations that might have been recorded, different things, uh, YouTube videos that are showing town hall meetings where different things are being discussed. There's things you can do to observe and listen and pull in the information that's going to help you understand the range of things that people are talking about. And there's a very systematic way of doing that. But let's talk about that process, that system of doing this information gathering, this qualitative information gathering. Let's talk about that in the context of, of two other ways of getting qualitative data. Because there is something called in-depth interviews or IDIs, and there's something called focus groups. And both are great ways of getting answers to how people think about and relate to something that you're focused on, whether it's a marketing a particular product or service or overcoming a market challenge or the like. And they're often interchanged, in-depth interviews and focus groups as being interchangeable, and they're not. There's specific reasons when one is the best approach versus the other. And when it comes to focus groups, typically the format of a focus group, if you've got um, six to eight people in a room and they're all similar in some kind of way, maybe they're all outdoorsy moms or maybe they are older professionals or perhaps they're, they're college kids that just recently enrolled in a four-year program, whatever is relevant to the people that you're trying to get information from, you're going to use those to kind of to create a, a homogeneous group that defines this target person. And then you're going you're gonna to ask them questions that only somebody of that kind of background is going to be an expert on. So if you're thinking about college students who recently enrolled in a four-year program and you're trying to better understand the anxiety of first-time students, then there's no better people to talk to about the anxiety of first-time students than students that just enrolled in a four-year program. And so they're experts in that idea of what's it all about starting college. And then collectively with them, you may be looking to explore solutions to minimize anxiety around this population. And so this group collectively will be able to share stories and provide feedback that is going to help you understand how you might do so. And that answer is going to better come from a group discussion and the way a group feeds off of each other, then it's going to come from any one individual. Now, the alternative is in-depth interviews where you're talking to individuals. And the individual interviews are most appropriate, are going to give you the best kind of data when you are trying to get information about something that relates to a person's individual experience. So when you're looking to better understand, you know, habits, attitudes, values, beliefs, a track record of engagement around a particular product or particular aspect of commerce or a problem that we all might have that is solved in a certain way. Learning about how people have engaged and related to and then overcome those problems, 
that's going to be best understood in an in-depth interview format. And if the topic might be a little bit sensitive or a little bit personal, or maybe it relates to finances or health, or it relates to the way in which we engage in relationships or the like, those kind of topics are also going to be easier to discuss in an in-depth interview than in a focus group. But ultimately, when thinking about qualitative, we're thinking about discovery and we're trying to focus on whether we want to get information that's going to be a creative answer coming from a group of experts, or is it going to be better understanding the history of how people have done something? And if it's the history of how people have done something, we're going to lean towards in-depth interviews. If it's based on a group of subject matter experts telling us, coming up with a creative solution, it's going to be from the focus groups. And you know what's kind of cool is this idea of the focus groups is, often, is sometimes referred to as a Delphi effect, where you have this collection of experts that, that have insight and understanding that we can never have because we're not them. And the way in which understanding comes out of a focus group setting can be very exciting. And with in-depth interviews, when structured correctly, you can really get into the details of why people do what they do and where do those motivations come from and what is the source and history of those motivations. And that also can be a very powerful and an interesting thing to better understand. Regardless of whether you're doing in-depth interviews or whether you're doing focus groups, the process of getting people to participate is typically the same. It starts with having a very good definition of exactly who you want to talk to. And again, that person that you want to talk to is the person that represents or embodies the very persona of the expert in the area you want to understand. It's that college student or that outdoorsy mom. And you operationalize the definition that defines that person. You operationalize the characteristics of it. So you say, okay, the outdoorsy mom, you start to say, okay, it's got to be somebody who has a, a, a child living in the household that they're the primary caregiver for, who is between the ages of three years old and 17 years old. It need, the person needs to be a, a woman. They need to be somebody who self-identifies as someone who enjoys being in the outdoors and somebody who has participated in an outdoor, in one or more of the following outdoor activities at least three times in the past three months. It's those kinds of operationalizing the definition of your target person that really starts to ground who you're talking to and who's going to be the right kind of person. And then within that world, within those parameters that you define, you then say, okay, and I want a mix of incomes. I want a mix of people living in rural or urban areas. I want a mix of gender and or a mix of age and a mix of race, those kinds of things, whatever is relevant or, or, or the like. And you want to kind of mix it up for everything else once you have those parameters drawn. And then you've got to recruit that person. And there's lots of ways to recruit the person. You can do an online survey of your screener questionnaire to get in touch with these people. And then as a part of that questionnaire, if they qualify, you can invite them to participate in the in-depth interview or the focus group. You're really going to have to pay people to do one of those two things. It's common for consumers participating in in-depth interviews to get around $60 for a 30 to 40 minute interview. And at focus groups, you're probably talking between $60 and $100, depending on the nature of what they have to do. It's a little more expensive for focus groups because you're asking people to go somewhere for the most part, whereas in-depth interviews, you're just trying to schedule a convenient time for them to be on the phone. When thinking about the recruiting as a part of that online questionnaire, you're also asking some open-ended questions to really get a sense of how engaged are they, how engaged are they in the process you're asking them 
to participate in. Because before you schedule them, you're going to want to call them up and you're going to want to just have a very brief five, 10 minute conversation about what you're doing. Make sure they understand the nature of what's being done, what's expected of them. Let them know that the conversations are going to be recorded, that they'll receive compensation after they participate. And then you ask them some really top line questions just to see, are they conversational? Are they going to talk to you? Are they are they open and are they sharing in the areas that you need them to share in? And if they're not, then you don't want to schedule them for the interview or for the focus group. You got to have people that are going to be active and and talkative. And if they are sharing and if they are open, then you go ahead and schedule them. And and, uh, you schedule them. And let's say we're talking about in-depth interviews. So you schedule them for a time to talk. And then your interviewer will, um, you'll both show up on the conference line or you'll call them or they'll call you depending on the logistics you want to do. It's probably best to have a conference line set up and then have the ability to reach out to them if they don't show up right away. And then you're going to record that conversation. And and the reason you record the conversation is because when you're done with the interview, you're going to need to transcribe it. And uh, that transcription is then coded in a fairly meticulous process. And then that coding becomes the source of analysis, becomes the core that's used to do your analysis. And so you might interview 25 people in this manner and having 30 to 40 minute interviews. And so you have 25, 30 to 40 minute recordings and all of that transcripts are then used to code them into different categories and the responses to questions into categories. And uh, that coding is used for your reporting. Now, how do you know what questions you're asking everybody? Well, that's that's a part of your setup process. When you're designing the process, you're, you're developing a discussion guide. You're developing a a set of questions and and probing questions that are going to guide the interview. And you don't have to follow those questions exactly when you're talking about qualitative research, but you want to make sure you get to everything so long as it continues to be relevant. And with all of that, you're then able to have some consistency among your 20, 25 interviews that allows you to um, code them in a way that keeps you sane. And they're able to write a fairly robust report that talks about the dynamics of how all that goes. Now, I said 20, 25 interviews. I've found that when you are doing in-depth interviews, it's kind of only six to eight is necessary. And it's six to eight interviews per grouping. So if we were going to our outdoorsy mom category and we were looking to get her reaction to different types of products that she might bring into the home and use with her kids, let's say it's a, a bug spray of sorts, then we might want to talk to moms that are very uh, DEET aware. They're concerned about the chemicals in the bug spray. And then we might want to talk to moms that are more concerned about functionality and the product working than they are about the chemicals. They're more concerned about the bug that the bug has than what may be introduced into their kid's system because of the chemicals in the spray itself. And so you might have people that are DEET aware and people that are are not overly concerned with DEET in bug spray. And that would represent two groups that otherwise are defined by these categories we talked about earlier, this definition of an outdoorsy mom. And so with each of those groups, the DEET aware and the DEET ambivalent, we would want to do six to eight interviews. So we probably end up doing around 12 to 16 interviews total if that was our overall study design. And the reason we limit it to six to eight is really for no other reason than what you'll find is right around the sixth, seventh interview, you're starting to hear the same story. There's nothing new. You've tapped into the way things work because, you know, at the end of the day, people are more alike than they're different. We are social animals that act in very regular, consistent, similar ways. And things that we think are very personal beliefs are actually shared beliefs in many cases. 
And that comes out by the time you've done your fifth, sixth, seventh interview. And if you keep going beyond that, you're just going to get, you have a lot of redundancy. And so usually you get the scope of perspectives by the time you've reached uh, a half dozen or a couple more. Uh, but in the, if there's a way in which the respondent or the interviewee is fundamentally different, then uh, um, you want to double check yourself and make sure you're not missing certain things. And you may have different types of questions that you're asking with some subtle variations of those questions based on the kind of person you know. And that's the, those are the basic ideas of gathering qualitative data, how you do it, why you do it, and what you get from it. And as a practice, I think you'll find if you're able to follow these basic techniques and patterns, that it's a fairly robust source of information to help you understand what you don't otherwise know. So we're going to wrap it there. And uh, in the next episode, we're going to talk about quantitative data. So thank you so much for tuning in. If you are not a subscriber, you know, now's the time. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. You can search Demystifying Data anywhere you like to listen to podcasts. And uh, we publish every Wednesday, so it's going to give you the opportunity to have a direct feed without you having to go out and find it every week. And we do hope you are enjoying these short formats and you're getting some information, you're getting some tools that you can use to kind of enhance your own business practices and your approach to business decision-making and overall that data is becoming demystified and a little more accessible to you. So thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And most importantly, I hope you're having a great day. Thank you so much. Tune in next time as Chris Clegg continues demystifying data. Meantime, head over to demystifyingdata.co to learn more.